Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Mountain Meister. This is Ben Shank, your host. As many of you may know, I am running the New York City Marathon for charity for the Challenge Athletes Foundation. You can find out all about what I'm doing on our website, mtnmeister.com. You can find out how to win some great Jansport multi-day packs. Check that out. And for those of you who have donated, thank you so much. I've raised $2,228 as of this recording. So thanks so much for your help. I am 64% of the way there, so if you haven't donated yet, please do. It's a really simple form to fill out online. It's tax-deductible. You get a customized thank you note from me. It's all sorts of fun. Now, enjoy this episode of Mountain Meister, and make sure you stay tuned for quite possibly the best Meister deal we have ever offered. We'll talk to you about that after the show. Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mountain Meister. This is Ben speaking. Hey, guys, it's Russell. Today, we welcome Megan McJames to the show. Megan grew up in Park City, Utah, doing many outdoor sports, soccer, tennis, mountain biking, hiking, but most notably ski racing. Megan has had 50 World Cup starts and has won numerous NORAM championships. After many years on the U.S. ski team, Megan failed to make the criteria to make the team again. After putting together a team of her own, paying her own expenses, and finding her own training, Megan made the U.S. Olympic team and finished in the top 30 at Sochi. Megan has secured World Cup spots for the future and will continue as an independent ski racer. Megan, welcome to Mountain Meister, and congratulations on Sochi. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show, Megan. Today we want to talk about your career as a professional ski racer, kind of the, the roller coaster that it's been on your career. But before that, I'm not that familiar with what independent ski racing is, how that differs from being on the U.S. ski team. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about independent ski racing? And then also, if you have any little snippets on your life and any personal <laughs> things, you know, that's always fun, too. Um. So at the end of the 2012 season, I was cut from the U.S. ski team. And after having, you know, a breakdown, um, independent ski racing was born out of the belief that I still had good turns to make. Um, so independent ski racing is myself as an athlete and my um, technician manager, Pat Andrews. And we um, last year traveled the World Cup circuit with the goal of making the Olympics, which we were able to accomplish and we're very excited about. Um, but basically, independent and ski racing is just um, my team and it's we try to make myself competitive with the other athletes around the world that are on national teams so sorry what was the position of your uh is it technician he's a technician um but he also helps me a lot with the logistics Mm -hmm. um that our travel requires so i call him my technician and manager nice and so a person, I'm guessing the ski team would be doing most of the things if you were on the ski team, they would be doing the same things that Pat's doing. Is that how it works? Yeah, so 
when you're on the ski team, you have a technician who takes care of your skis and equipment, um, tuning them and waxing them every day, making sure they're fast on race day. Um, and then you also have a coach, and they also have an office full of people taking care of the logistics and all different types of things that go along with traveling around the world to ski race. So um, I needed some help. I couldn't just do it by myself. Um, and so I hired Pat. Um, but I was only able to hire one guy just because of financial constraints. Mm -hmm. You were on the ski team for years, correct? But then you got cut in 2012. What is the criteria to make the team? Um, yes. Yeah, so I was on the U.S. ski team for seven years. Um, and the criteria to make the U.S. ski team changes as you get older. It gets harder as you get to be an older athlete. Huh. Uh, so after the 2010 Olympics, um, I was dropped from my ski company. Uh, and the next season, because of these new boots that I was forced into, broke my heel bone in the apex of a GS turn. Ooh. And then that next season of rehab coming back, I had a really tough season and wasn't skiing fast. And at the end of this season, I didn't make my criteria for my age, which is usually about top 25 in the world. So um, I was cut. But like I said, I was it was a bad day, but I still felt like I was – you know, had good turns under my belt. And the next season, um, 2012-13, was just about taking a step back and, real like, rebuilding my skiing from the beginning. And it wasn't like I was fast all of a sudden again. It took a lot of work, and we, did we you know, t took a look at why I wanted to be a ski racer and the things that made me fast, and we slowly started to rebuild on those. And then at the end of that season, I was able to win the North American Cup overall title, which is how I got my World Cup season's last year which allowed me to make the olympics that makes me feel a lot more comfortable with what independent ski racing is i also read that you were the only one at sochi for the u.s that was doing independence mm -hmm. everyone else was on the ski team is that correct uh yes everyone else was from the national team just because you know what i'm doing is kind of a new thing and in the past, it's been you get cut from the U.S. ski team and your career is over. And so this is kind of a new thing. There's not many people doing it, and it's also challenging. There's um, On the positive side, you can create a very individualized program and do whatever you need to do for your athletic success. But it's also you know, really challenging to raise enough money to be able to travel around Europe all winter um, and hire someone to travel with you and you know, challenges like that. Hmm. So then you had the success and you made the team, but you said you want to continue doing this independently. What's the real benefit to being an independent ski racer? Well, for one, even though I made the Olympics, I did not make the U.S. ski team. So I don't really have a choice to go back to them next season. They, can't, they can't accept you back? Uh, no, because I'm, even though I made the Olympics, I'm still, uh, I think, about 34th in the world instead of top mm, 25. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it's all kind of subjective. They could take me on um, discretion, but they just haven't at this mm -hmm. point. And so there's world championships on U.S. soil next year in Vail Beaver Creek. And so that is my next goal. And so next season, racing independently, I'm going to be trying to get to world championships. So let's go to the time when the cut actually happened. Did you have this plan that it sounded like it took a little bit to realize, you know, I really can do this myself. When you face that initial shock, what was the timeline? What were the steps that you took in order to get to the position that you're in now? The first, when I got cut, it was a bit of a surprise because I'd been on the U.S. ski team for seven years. So I, I guess I was lulled into a false sense of security. 
Um, and when I was cut, I was in shock and didn't know exactly what it would take to run my own program. And so this guy, Pat Andrews, had a daughter who wanted to ski race. And so he kind of stepped up and was like, I'll help you um, if you ski with my daughter a bit. And so we met that way and we worked through that season, um, my first season of raising independently. And there was still days when I was like, why am I still doing this? I could get a desk job and it wouldn't be nearly as hard on my ego. It wouldn't be. <laughs> um, but then, you know, it was always like, I love to ski. I love to be in the mountains and that's the bottom line. So I started building and building and it wasn't until um, we have this series in April and it wasn't until the, what they call the North American Cup Finals that I really stepped it up and was had a big winning streak where I was able to close the overall title for the season. And so that was kind of, after that, it was really motivating to have a little bit of success. And and once I had those World Cup spots under my belt, then, you know, making the Olympics is possible because you have to be able to race World Cup to make things like the Olympics and World Championship. Mm, okay. You mentioned those times when you're really struggling, and I think the emotions that you feel at that time are like kind of embarrassment or some sort of confusion or thinking, like, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? And I think what cures that is when you get that validation of winning a race or being successful, but you never know when that comes. So I guess when you're feeling those those negative emotions, what do you think about in order to kind of keep yourself going and not quit? Um, well, I guess to be really blunt about it, you do get to a point where you have to sit down with yourself and be either I'm going to quit or I'm going to toughen up and keep going. And, you know, some days are really hard, but for me, even it was, you know, if I had a faster run, that was enough to be like, okay, what did I do there to take to the next day and make it two good runs. And so I think my advice would be, you know, if you really want something, you have to keep plugging away at it. And two, it's almost, you have to let the emotion go enough to see what the good parts are and what you can take with you to make you better. Yeah. And not that I want to continue talking about failure, but you had a couple (laughs) really interesting injuries. One was, breaking your heel like you were saying breaking your heel on the apex of a turn is that like common that seems like crazy you got to be uh, and how do you such a sharp turn or how does that even happen too, right? was it the yeah. ski boots or what was it well yeah it's a freak accident because mostly in ski racing if you get injured it's a big crash and um mm-hmm. for me i was just making a turn and i just felt pain ran away and stopped mm. And I think it's a weird thing because I have been in Lang boots my whole life. And since then, I went back to them. But that one year, I was on a different brand. And I had been feeling pain through the season. It was kind of uncomfortable. And then, you know, like I said, in the turn, my heel, a piece of my heel bone just broke off. It had enough. Um, and so, sorry. <laughs> so I think that was just, you know, probably a combination of my body telling me it's had enough for a while it needed a break and um a freak accident isn't that is that something you can recover from yeah, a piece you, of your bone breaking that's off that's what or? i was wondering yeah no we we tr- we tried to let it heal and it didn't really heal correctly so we ended up having a surgery and we just got the part that broke off taken out um so now i just don't have it and it did take a while for it to stop being painful like physical therapy and then the next season of me skiing you know if we ski on injected snow a lot which is they um 
take water and inject it into the hill so it freezes into a very hard sheet of ice. Mm -hmm. And so for a while after that, it hurts skiing on injected snow because it can be very hard and very bumpy. Um, but now it's fully recovered and it doesn't bother me very often at all. I've actually never heard of injected snow. I ski raced for several years when I was younger. So they in, injected snow is just a well, like, sheet of ice on the hill and well, then they no, cover it. No, it's under, isn't it? It's right, like, it's underneath. Is the, it a series of tubes that are freezing or how does that oh, work? Oh, is that what it is? There's a couple ways they can do it. One, they can just take hoses and spray the hill and hmm. kind of mix the water in with the snow as they're grooming it, so it just makes it harder. Um, but if they're really doing a true injection, they have a bar with a series of pipes, I guess, that go punch down into the snow, and they take it and zigzag it down the whole hill and just inject water through the whole thing. And it kind of comes up and bubbles to the top to make it icy. Huh. And it's kind of a new thing. They do it more on Men's World Cup than Women's, but... It is a good thing in the fact that it makes the surface more fair. So if you're starting in the back, you, you don't have so many ruts and bumps to deal with as you would if the snow was soft. Interesting. Okay, yeah. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it makes it so if your skis aren't tuned to a to a T that you're probably going to fly <laughs> off as too. But it, it seems like that's why you got to have Pat, so he saves you there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So let's go back to independent ski racing, uh, just so I understand the business a little bit more. You do a lot of fundraising, correct, to support your racing. How does the U.S. ski team make most of their money to support the racers? Um, the U.S. ski team is a nonprofit organization as well. So um, they do a lot of fundraising and they have a lot of sponsors and stuff like that to raise their money. But for me, I'm looking for both donors and sponsors to help support me get to world championships next season. Mm -hmm. And for sponsors, I can offer advertising on my uniform, which is a little bit unique because I don't have that national team uniform. I can mm -hmm. put your logo right on my jacket or my helmet and advertise you on my website, which with world championships being on U.S. soil sea racing is going to be shown live in the U.S. for the first time ever. So that's kind of a cool marketing standpoint. Um, and then donors, I've had a lot of success with donors, just really awesome people who believe in following your dreams. And for them, I have some swag options listed on my website, but I can also offer you a tax deduction. Oh, wow. Then there's also this organization called the T2 Foundation. Are they affiliated with you or is that just one of your donors? How does that work? T2 has been very supportive, and the T2 Foundation, their goal is to support athletes like myself, um, and they support, basically every year they write me a grant, and so they're one of my supporters, um, and they do this for a lot of athletes, um, because even athletes that are on the U.S. ski team have to pay a lot of money to be on the U.S. ski team. So you'll make the U.S. ski team, and they'll be like, you owe us X amount of dollars for next year. <laughs> So the T2 Foundation kind of steps into that gap and um, pays for U.S. ski team athletes who have to fund themselves or people like me who have to fund their seasons. So, I mean, it, it sounds like a great organization, but I don't really get, like, where do they then get their money from? Is it just um, other ski racers who've donated in the past? It's kind of like if you go to a college and then yeah. you've been helped out, you'll help out in the future. Or how does that work? Um, it's still pretty new. I don't know if any ski racers have, who have gotten old enough to give back, but mm. I think right now the T2 Foundation has its own set of um, strong donors. Mm. 
So they raise their own money and then give it out the way they want. And then their only caveat to getting a grant from them is they want you to give back. So like for me as a ski racer, they want me to give back to developing skiing or young ski racers coming up mm-hmm. Very cool. in return for my grant. So. so to switch topics, you also have a sincere passion for baking, Russell and I read. And <laughs> I love to cook. I don't bake too much, but I eat what people bake for me. So <laughs> when did this passion develop, and is this something that you could see down the road? Yeah, um, so I've always liked to mess around in the kitchen, and a couple of years ago when I was on the US ski team, a teammate of mine felt the same way, and so we started um, baking for events. Um, we do cookies for real estate luncheons, or we did a couple wedding cakes or cupcakes for weddings. And it was just really fun. So I think I always tell people it's on my bucket list to open a bakery, but it's kind of on the back burner right now to ski racing. Mm-hmm. What, what kind of stuff do you bake? What's your favorite cookies or pastries? Um, well, I like to decorate things. So the wedding cakes are really fun for me because I can make them fancy and beautiful. And then my teammate, she does really, she makes the best chocolate chip cookie in the world. Ooh, in the world. <laughs> what, uh, yeah, that's a tall order. What kind of chocolate? Is there any unique spin on this chocolate chip cookie or is it more of a classic? It's just a classic, but it always turns out so yummy. Hmm. You just undercook them. That's the way to <laughs> yes. I also like the chocolate chip cookies with salt in them. You don't mm-hmm. like that? The little yep. uh, salty-sweet combo? Bacon is the new thing. on. Yeah, bacon <laughs> and chocolate. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. This is kind of funny because I mentioned that I ski raced before, and my dad is actually just an incredible griller. Um, okay. So I used to race, and we would have you know events every other weekend. My dad, when I joined the ski team, started grilling for the ski racers because okay. originally everybody would just like, do those steamed hot dogs and sauerkraut, you know? And so Mm -hmm. my dad would bring in like pork tenderloin or chicken stir fry and everybody loved him. He was the most popular person on the mountain. I could see that when you're on the cold for a long time, you get pretty hungry. Yeah, exactly. So that would make me race a little faster too. If I had that like barbecue (laughs) scent coming up the hill and you get down faster (laughs) and you get a burger. This is also really weird. I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I've always thought if you have to go to the bathroom, at the top of the mountain, it motivates you just a little bit more to get down faster. Have you ever thought about that, Megan, or no? Yes, but I hate that feeling when I'm trying to race, so I always try to go before <laughs> I get stuck there. If you really have the adrenaline pumping through, you might not realize that you actually went to the bathroom during your run. So. <laughs> that ever happened to you, Ben? <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? No, not yet. Okay. Oh, interesting. Well, let's move on. Um, we like to ask our guests for a gear recommendation, Megan. And you were telling us before the show that you have kind of a unique pick. So let's hear it. I love to ski in the, it's a Patagonia fleece. It's called the R2 men's fleece. And it is a men's fleece, but I love the men's clothing because um, some of the women's ski jackets make you, try to make you look a little too curvy while you're skiing. And I like to be warm and comfortable. And this fleece is extra long. And so it goes right over my ski pants and doesn't let any cold air in. So that's my pick. We will throw that on your Meister profile page, Megan. Yeah. Sometimes Ben likes to wear women's Women's clothing clothing, just to show off his curves a little more, but (laughs) he thinks it's more aerodynamic too, to be that tight. Well, we spend so much time in our 
full one-piece spandex suit that when I don't have to wear that, I go a little to the other end on baggy. Uh-huh. Now, does this apply to your wardrobe outside of skiing? Do you only wear men's clothing? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> I don't know if my boyfriend would like that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll ask you one more question. This has been a great talk so far. And so you've had these ups and downs and you know, like you said, you want to keep skiing and, you know, keep having fun and keep doing what you love. So what's the biggest challenge that you see for yourself next year and maybe the next couple seasons for you as a ski racer? So the challenges I'm working on organizing right now to be prepared for next season um, is, number one, the fundraising aspect. Um, so that takes up a lot of my time in the summer. And then also getting enough coaching. So I don't hire a coach just for financial reasons, um, but I need to work in with a coach. And I use a coach here in Park City. And so when I come home, I work with him, but I'm trying to figure out how to get him on the road with me. So um, I have at the beginning of the season, three World Cup starts, and I want to try to get him over for some of those. So I've always, I've always wondered about coaches in professional athletics, because you're you are so knowledgeable about the sport, and I know that a coach can help with certain things. So I guess my question is, like, what what value does a coach really add? Is it psychological help, or are there little tweaks that you can have in your skiing that the coach can point out, and you wouldn't really notice those? Yeah, um, I think for the technique and tactical, which is line mm-hmm. um, around the gates, for those aspects, it's mostly reminders, because um, they're not saying anything you don't know, but sometimes... You just need an outside perspective to remind you because you won't know that your hips are rotating a little or your hand is dropping a little just because it's a habit or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on race day, the reason I want him there for race day is more of – so we have our coaches on the hill watching the race as it goes. So I'll start probably like 40th, and so he can watch the top 40 racers go and radio up and tell me how the course is, any um, tactical things that I need to change, any tricks and stuff like that. And so do you have the course memorized where you can say, you know, gate 23, take it a little wider, or how does he communicate that? Yeah, um, I do. We have an inspection run before the race, so we slip down and check it out. And um, everyone does it differently, but most athletes have it memorized and can visualize themselves mm. skiing it before they go. And so he won't necessarily be, say, you know, the number of the gate, but, you know, you have the terrain memorized, so he'll... He'll say, you know, the last roller before the finish, you have to give room to make the, the gates tighten up after that, and you have to be ready for that or something to that effect. Have you ever seen these blind ski racers that are in the Paralympics? Yes, so cool. Do you think you could do that? No, it's so <laughs> We're trying um, to get somebody like that on the show. We actually have a fr- I have a friend who um, her husband leads her, and she is the blind racer, and it's so cool. I couldn't imagine doing that. Yeah, we'll have to get them on the show. For our listeners, if you're unaware of this, one person who is not blind leads the blind ski racer, and they communicate through like a telecommunication of Like device. a Bluetooth headset. Yeah, I don't know, something yeah. on their helmet. And the racer, I mean, they still go like 70 miles an hour down the hill, <laughs> and they're following this person by like 20, I think it's like 20 or 30 feet. So they're very, very close to each other as they fly down the hill. It's really cool. Yeah, we're going to try to get somebody like that on here. Quickly, Megan, you mentioned the fundraising part of it. And this is something that Russell and I are kind of experiencing with the podcast is that you have to do a lot of what we call shameless self-promotion. And 
I don't want to give this a negative connotation at all, but it it just it's difficult to shamelessly promote yourself. Has that been a difficult transition since you left the U.S. ski team? Um, yes, I have had a crash course in fundraising, and at first it was a little bit tough because I had to learn how to hear no or mostly just have people ignore me, which is fine. And but it just took me a while to have it kind of roll off my back instead of being like, oh, like, did I do something wrong? They don't like me. Um, But I find that you have to send out like 100 emails to get one back. (laughs) And the people that I have most success getting donations from are are people that I've met and know. So I try to go out and meet people at events and tell my story um, because people, I think, identify with a story of perseverance and passion like mine so I just have to go out and tell it Um, but that can be a lot of work when you're also trying to train and everything else that goes into ski racing so yeah I guess I've learned a lot about it pretty quickly. (laughs) Megan thank you so much for joining us today this has been a ton of fun. Yeah and for our listeners check out Megan's uh, blog to it megan-mcjames.wordpress.com and we'll put all the links and everything on our website mtnmeister.com and uh, you can check out her Meister profile page, get you some, some men's swag, whether you're a <laughs> guy or girl. And, uh, Are you selling cookies on your blog, <laughs> <laughs> No, but I could add that. If you make a donation, I could send you cookies. Ooh, <laughs> oh, that I like that. might be good. That's great. Yeah, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you so much, guys. Well, there it is, quite possibly the best Meister deal that has ever been offered, chocolate chip cookies. I'm hungry just thinking about them. Megan also has other prize options listed on her website if the chocolate chip cookies just aren't good enough for you. Uh, She has a custom Olympian Megan McJames t-shirt. She also is offering winter hats, a postcard, an autographed action photo, and if you're generous enough, even a framed World Cup bib. Some pretty cool prizes there. Check that out. We'll have the details posted to Megan's Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com. Don't forget that if you like what you heard today, you can just subscribe to our podcast on any platform you desire. SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, iTunes. It is sickening the way that some people listen to podcasts. My dad used to listen by logging onto our website and listening through Safari. That's not the right way to do it. Sorry, Dad. He knows better now, though, Meister fans. Enjoy doing the rest of whatever you are doing while listening to this podcast. Until next time, I am Ben Shank. Thanks for listening.